Welcome to the Stepping Out of Line podcast hosted by me, Leo Gibbons. This podcast examines those who have, in their own way, stood out from the crowd and stood by what they believe in. If you share my fascination with public figures who are not afraid to be themselves and follow their own path, this might just be the podcast for you. And now, to the preamble. Me and John Burke both had fairly short political careers, but as you hear in this podcast, his was far more successful than mine. But despite us never having met before, we share a belief and a bond that politics should be different. That above all else, honesty, directness and speaking hard truth no matter what should be respected, even admired. Not only did John get things done in office, he showed that you could do this while speaking like a normal person, having banter, being blunt, relentlessly cutting through the crap, being brutally honest and challenging campaigners no other politician would dare to touch. He stepped out of line, and because of that he went through some really, really tough times. This is his story in his own words. Here with me today is John Burke, ex Hackney Councillor and next Cabinet Member for Energy, Waste, Transport and the Public Realm. For some, John is a rare example of a conviction politician, walking the walk on climate policy when many of his contemporaries simply talk a good game. But for others, he's an overbearing figure who runs roughshod over those who he disagrees with to achieve his personal ambitions. A working class kid from inner Liverpool, his mum a cleaner and his dad was an electrician who would later work at Sanlo, the UK's second largest oil refinery. Not the not the background of your typical eco warrior, is it, John? Not the not the background of your typical politician either, I'd say. Certainly not your background of your typical Labour politician. That's probably a conversation for another time, I think. But yeah, but uh, but but absolutely not, you know drawn from i think the usual suspects and you know what i've tried to do is pluralize and popularize i mean i i, I I'm, I'm i'm reluctant to call it environmentalism as if it's something that's distinct from socialism i'm a socialist and to be a socialist you need to be an environmentalist but i think as the greens frequently demonstrate to be an environmentalist you don't need to be a socialist and possibly an element of this is kind of my practical upbringing my engineering background as an undergrad i think that encourages you to prioritize you know the language of priorities the religion of socialism as as bevan said and i you know i i i have no doubt whatsoever that where he alive today his preoccupation would be averting a um a climate catastrophe even in fact if you go back and take a look and you mine um some of his work albeit there's very little kind of written work that came out of bevin um you see a kind of nascent environmentalist in his work when he makes statements like you know if we are not so very careful or the fast at the time of fast approaching when if we are not so very careful we'll be watching one another starve to death through our expensive television sets um and if that doesn't i think um indicate 
um, where he would be today politically. I don't think anything would do. You know, to me, he's a, a pioneer and a visionary. And, you know, though celebrated in the Labour Party, probably not celebrated enough kind of nationally. And I think he also appealed to me, uh, you know, as a thing my son's called an irony is named after after Bevan, um, appealed to me because, um, you know, I think that he was uh, a great leader in spite of the, the many difficulties that um, uh, he was subjected to um, in his own childhood. He, you know, most people don't know that Bevan had a debilitating stutter and one of the reasons he had such a broad vocabulary was he had to find synonyms for words that he found difficult to pronounce um and i think he at one point he said i didn't so much overcome my stomach as beat it to death with dreadful um rhetoric i'm told that i think in the francis uh beckett biography of him which is very good i'm told that he wandered the hills around tradigo with the only book that his family had in the house which was the bible reciting passages from it in order to try and overcome that stutter so you know, a great and influential figure on my own politics. I think it would be fair to say someone temperamentally I'm kind of quite a close fit with. Um, and I think, you know, um, though, of course, you know, Bevan's achievements are towering and we stand on his uh, giant-like shoulders to this very day, I think I employed the same kind of modus operandi as Bevan did at the Health and Housing Ministries and got a lot done in a very short period of time. So, you know, I think there there are some, if not um, as many as I'd like, parallels that can be drawn there. It's clear that Anirin is one of your political heroes. Does that come from more than just what he achieved, but a shared affinity? You once said that he was a flawed man, but he was a great human being because of those flaws. Um, is that something that you kind of, share in him i often think similarly to you i think that left politics is extremely poke-faced one of the reasons i kind of you, you, one of the reasons i like your um tweets leo is that you are one of the few people on the left who are kind of uh you know kind of regular tweeters on the left well i say the left the left's okay i mean kind of within the labor party that kind of would know how to have a good time when utopia arrived i think you know um i think i think politics and left politics is incredibly po-faced and i think bevan wasn't a you know a strong fit within those circles because you know we value um i think in politics generally i think uh in the labor party specifically because we on some kind of atavistic level desire to be part of the mainstream or elements of the party desire to, 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 to you know desire to be part of the mainstream and to be accepted by um and to be accepted by i think the, the kind of ruling class um and i don't think it, it's odd isn't it that on the one hand bevan was like a confidant and friend of rodomir um he was once described as a by a um either a conservative politician an mp or a, or a right-leaning uh journalist as a a lounge lizard Lennon, a ritzy Robespierre, because he used to enjoy the theatre and um, other cultural pursuits and champagne. But I think, you know, if we're not fighting for champagne for everybody, then what's the point of socialism? Um, so, you know, I think there are some parallels there. I think, you know, 
I, I kind of, I'm not going to say we come from a similar background. Yeah, my mum, you know, you know, I come from, a, a, you know, a working class background, um, an incredibly working class background, but in, in, in kind of political times or modern political times. But, you know, this is a man who went down the mines when he was 13 years old. So I'm not going to kind of draw any um, parallels there. I think we're probably quite similar characters. I think that's why I've been kind of drawn to him and tried to learn and draw on his experiences um, in power. I think that that can be distilled down into doing the socialism that you can with the time, the the resources and the power that you have. I'm not sure it came up in maths very often, but um, certainly at school, they used to tell the, the parable of the, of the three servants from the Old Testament where um, the, the master is going away for a long period and he calls his three servants to him. And to the first one, he gives three bags of gold and tells him to go away and, and do what he can with it um, upon his return. And the second one, he gives two bags of gold. And then the third one, he gives one bag of gold. The, third, the first one goes away. I think he returns with kind of four bags of gold at the end. Master's very happy. The second servant takes his two bags of gold and returns with three. But the third servant is kind of cast out by the master because for fear of losing the, the gold he's been given, he buries it in the ground. And I think that that's a kind of appropriate, I think, uh, analogy for what many politicians of the left do. They get handed the gold of power, a mandate from the public, and they get sent to the town hall to make a difference in people's lives. And they bury their bag of gold in the ground for four years and then come back to the public and say, this is what I've got for you. Well, you know, I like to think I took my bag of gold and invested it heavily. Um, I think my re- I think my record demonstrates that. Yeah, that's something I, I relate to. There's this kind of a lot of politicians in the Labour Party are, are kind of paralysed by by fear, fear that they might show you some personality and be found out and got themselves in trouble. There's, you know, I have lots of friends in the Labour Party who are kind of full of life, who are real characters. But when it comes to their formal role, suddenly they don't really want to show who they are. And there's a fear that um, you might, that Labour politicians have to be kind of pious and serious. And that's the only way we can kind of get on and be trusted in public office. We can't show our human side. I think that I think that's an aspect of it. But I think also, and I, you know, this is not some great revelation because it's something I return to quite often in fact i was tweeting about this just yesterday but i think the, the the other aspect is is that you know despite ostensibly representing the working class uh you know the labor party as an institution you know it very much subscribes to and, and upholds the kind of holy cultural cows of, of bourgeois society and the uppermost of those is the politics of niceness Actually, the Labour Party doesn't compel its politicians enough to be good. It doesn't compel its politicians enough to go out and do socialism in the world and transform society for the better. But it, it is absolutely rigid in its uh, command of Labour Party politicians to at all times and everywhere to be polite. And I, you know, loathe the kind of bourgeois culture of niceness. Not because I think it's uh, in you know in any way inherently kind of wrong to be polite to people. Uh, I mean, I think that's the minimum that we should be. You know, when people engage with this in in good faith and are 
and are and are polite and we should reciprocate that but because i i don't like insincerity um and i can tell you you know both you and i could reel off a list of politicians as long as you are and there are absolutely loads and shouldn't be anywhere near public office right who the public um regard as kind of genial um polite individuals um because they would never tell um uh, you know a bigoted taxi driver that they're a tedious bigot on twitter for fear <laughs> that for fear that uh, the whip might come knocking at the door well you know i was brought up to i think to be a fighter i think i've brought that into the politics that i've done um and i'm not going to stop fighting um because you know for the good society because the labor party expects me to be a kind of bloodless dispassionate um kind of town hall bureaucrat you know the, i think the other aspect of of the labor party is that and this is what true of all political parties the deeper you get is the kind of religious cult-like elements of adherence to its to its axioms and its doctrines and you know i was brought up in a wider left culture i think people find that when they go to liverpool that you know being on the left isn't just about being in the labor party it's about being an activist it's about being in the trade union movement very important i think it'd be fair to say liverpool produced more general secretaries of trade unions than any city in britain um and i think there's a reason for that what i've tried to do is to put my socialism first and i think that bevan always put his socialism first if you're a figure that is not easily kind of commanded does not easily i think adhere to um or, or to defer to kind of um you know party structures and doctrines i think you're always going to struggle a little bit within the party that being said I think that there are many people in the party who realize that it's necessary to have kind of groundbreakers within the party. I think where I'm very different, and this is something, sorry, I'm rambling on, so you'll have to edit this, but I think this is where I, I, I'm kind of at pains to emphasize the difference between, say, me and someone like, kind of like Jeremy Corbyn, right? Is that people often think because you're on the left of the Labour Party, you all come from exactly the same tradition. Whereas I would, you know, this is not necessarily a criticism, it's just a statement of fact. I would characterize kind of Corbyn's left as being um, a lot more influenced by the kind of charitable Christian socialist trend within the Labour Party. It's what I like to call kind of why can't we all be a bit nicer socialism? Whereas I'm a kind of come out of a working class structuralist tradition uh, that believes that. And in some ways, there's a kind of kernel of left libertarian, I suppose, about all left libertarianism about all of this, because I sort of believe that if you get the structures right, society looks after itself, um, you know. And I think that one of the other, I suppose, big differences is that, you know, I'm I've been drawn to left politics because I see problems in the world to fix. It's not a uh, this is not a social activity for me. I like going to the match and having a few beers and spending time with people who you know have a fleeting interest in politics and being with my family and my wife and my kids um and i think that to, to really get on in the labor party you've got to make everything else in your life subservient to the labor party that doesn't necessarily mean when i say get on i don't mean to achieve anything i think there are kind of there's a long line of Labour Party politicians who are instantly forgettable, who have kind of like stellar careers in the Labour Party and can't point to a single street tree that they've delivered anywhere in the land. 
you know, after 30 or 40 years in politics. But I mean, if you want to rise up the ranks of the Labour Party, um, then, you know, you've got to go and glad handle people and you've got to tell people who aren't actually very good at politics that you think they're great. Um, and I just kind of, you know, that's just not me, really. Um, and, and, it, and it makes me sound like a real curmudgeon, but that is, I, think anybody, I think anybody who knows me knows that, that kind of um, I'm the opposite of that, really. Um, you know, I think, and I, and I think there's a reason why so few comparatively working class people uh, rarely make it to the upper echelons in anything but a, you know, a, a performative way. I mean, we had obviously Prescott and people like that, but they were never in positions that might, you know, actually, I mean, I think the last great, you know, working class kind of, I mean, I load the phrase, but kind of political change maker in the Labour Party, the last great working class, what, what, what Bogdan or called politicians who made the weather was an Iron Bevan. Um, and I think, you know, uh, I think the Labour Party realised in Bevan, you know, what happens when you give driven, able, working class people power, you go away in the exercise. And there is this kind of theme, I think, in the from what you're saying and what the the Labour Party kind of wants from its politicians is a almost a cult of niceness, a cult of politeness that it's um, pushing niceness or being able to say the right things politically is more important than sincerity. So the classic thing, I think I was you know, 18 when it happened, just starting to figure out the world politically when Gordon Brown called Gillian Duffy a bigot. <laughs> At the time, I thought, oh, fair play, probably should have said it to her face, but he's clearly having a quiet word with his driver afterwards. We'd all do the same. I don't really see the big deal. Um, that's how we feel. And then the apology, is it in... He's he kind of apologising for getting caught. I don't really like it. And when I went to when I became a councillor, I said, "Well, no, I'm just going to be myself. I'm not going to not going to change. I'm going to say it how I feel." But that doesn't really often work politically. Um, your time in office was tumultuous at times um, and challenging at times. And what I'm getting at is, do you think that it's a a class issue that you need to be able to kind of that people from a certain background can play the game play the politics game or do you think it's just personality and you have to have a certain personality to play that politics game to rise up the ladder because actually if you are sincere all the time and honest and upfront you will upset people and make enemies and often powerful enemies well, I don't think, I think it would be fair to say that there hasn't been uh, a politician of any any note, and by any note, I mean people who have changed things in, 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 in British history. Um, and, and let's say, let's take, I mean, British history is long, let's take kind of British post-war history. I don't think there's been a political figure of the left or right that have implemented... Uh, significant changes that disrupt the status quo that hasn't been regarded at various times and, and continue to be regarded by various groups of people you know as a kind of an enemy and so i you know i think one of the things that i'd often get with the kind of and you've got to remember that well 
you do remember, obviously, it's a turn of phrase, but the Labour Party is not a party of socialists. It's a coalition of people across the left-wing spectrum, and that's absolutely fine, and, you know, totally understand that. Um, but, you know, the, 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 there's, there's certainly a, a, a kind of let's-all-be-nice left-liberal tradition that thinks that the good society happens by chance, um, that thinks that you can radically say reimagine the public realms that didn't hack me without pushback from you know those beneficiaries of the status quo and i think that that is just laughably naive you know i used to get people coming to me saying you know I really like amsterdam and what they've done there and i went on holiday and it was great to like cycle round and there was like so few cars and can't we just like do what amsterdam did and i'm like well go back to the pipe which is a neighborhood of amsterdam um, amsterdam i mean you know, in the 1970s and see drivers chasing kids down the street, see them trying to run over people in their cars, you see proponents of, say, streets for their the, the, the children coming out and blockading the roads. And you don't need to go as far as Amsterdam to find that either because the first low traffic neighbourhood that was delivered in Hackney in the Beauvoir in 1974 was the result of largely mothers um, coming out to protect their children, blockading the roads of the Beauvoir and, and coming out to protect their children um, from being, um, you know, killed at the hands of drivers. Um, you know, I, I don't think that there's really any precedent in history for positive social change that hasn't been resisted by the ruling class and by the beneficiaries of the status quo. And I, I think that the Labour Party is just simply too full of pain. You know, I love the Labour Party, continue to be a member of the Labour Party, uh, you know, might, 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 you know, become a Labour Party politician again one day, who knows? But, you know, I think that culturally, one of the big problems of the Labour Party is it thinks it can either, you know, achieve, um, uh, you know, the good society in a bloodless way um, or that it can, um, or that can do so by stealth. And I believe in honest politics. I believe in, you know, going out and telling the public, you know, what you intend to do, asking that public to judge you at the ballot box. You know, democracy is a beautiful and brutal thing, right? And sometimes you lose and sometimes the public decide that you're the right person for the job. And when they do that, go and do that job. You know, don't continually return to, through kind of pseudo democratic processes to ask the people who oppose the changes you've um, committed to deliver, um, you know, whether they want to veto on those changes because you haven't got the guts to deliver them. Um, and I think that's, you know, an all too common problem of the left. And I think it's why we lose. We lose in England, we lose in Britain, we lose in Europe and we lose internationally. And I remember people kind of, I, I once kind of tweeted that we needed the kind of killer instinct, albeit through a prism of left-wing politics that you know people like dominic cummings and boris johnson who is we mustn't forget is you know one of the most successful uh, electorally successful politic politicians in british history you know a man who kind of defeated um, a popular labor mayor in a labor city and outpolled his own party in um you know tory boroughs like bromley by 12 points despite the kind of um constant kind of mischaracterization of johnson as a bit of a kind of buffoon buffoons don't win elections in the way that johnson has done i think i'm told that he's been telling his aides that he might be prime minister again within a year and i you know i think in the past i've made the mistake of possibly the 
underestimating Johnson and I was kind of Labour's hitman and says he author kind of the best part of 10 years. And if I was a gambling man, I'd probably go down to Labrooks today and put a tenner on that, um, you know, on a walking back through the door of number 10 one day. And I, and I don't think we, you know, on the left have the killer instinct that those people have to seize power and to uh, and and to right the wrongs that we came into politics ostensibly to address. Steve Bannon, I know you you want to ask a question, but Steve Bannon kind of popularized, if not kind of created the, the the phrase of moving fast and breaking stuff, and that was the duty of of, of the kind of American right. Uh, you know, I used to go under the um, under the banner of moving fast and fixing stuff, and I don't think that there's enough zeal to move fast. Or enough zeal to fix stuff on on the left. I'm afraid. I'm just uh, struck by Boris Johnson thinking that you know his career is currently in tatters. He's a a bit of a national laughing stock, but he believes that he could come back, and the the self confidence to think that you know you can come back from what he has. He still has it within him to win back the Tory party, become prime minister. It got me thinking that maybe sometimes. Labour politicians lack that self-confidence. For me personally, I was never sure whether A, the public say they like conviction politicians, but actually when they come across a politician who has different convictions to them, they dislike it. Or actually I just wasn't particularly good at selling the policies that I agreed with. I was out once canvassing, the uh, ULEs had just been expanded and basically the border the south circular cut through my ward so it was a difficult kind of situation to juggle with some people on one side some people on the other um and a lot of crisscrossing and if they're the older vehicles they might have been uh, angry about it my briefing before our canvassing session knocking on doors was basically to say this is a good policy deal with it you know, if you don't like it, really. Fundamentally, that's what I was going to say to people. Um, but I couldn't work out whether that was just a, a wrong way of going about selling this policy or actually the public just don't like someone who's direct and honest. Or uh, fundamentally, is it that self-doubt that's an issue? You can get by in politics if you believe in yourself and actually that self-doubt is what holds people back in your in your time in office how did you deal with those moments of doubt or were you a bit like Boris Johnson and just head down and got it done anyway I think for for you know an 11 plus failing Catholic self-doubt is kind of um inherent to your to your character in <laughs> in, in in some ways but I think I you know I never suffered from a kind of political self-doubt because and I don't mean that in a, a I don't mean that in a in, in a kind of being willing to learn way because you know um, I love understanding ideas from first principles. I love engineering solutions to problems. I think that's part of my character. And if a solution doesn't work, I think that we should revisit that and do something else. Although you know, in political terms, the the the, the approach seems to be if a solution doesn't work, then we'll scrap that and do nothing else, which is which is kind of. Um, you know, a source of frustration for me, particularly from the perspective of the left. Um, you know, but on the doorstep, 
um, I think that I suppose I'm a natural performer and I think that I enjoy the theater of politics and I love speaking to people. You know, I used to work in like a bookshop. I come from a city where people sit and talk to each other on the bus. They're interested in each other's lives. I can't say that every single conversation I ever had resulted in me converting somebody, but I was, I like to think a bit of a Billy Graham of kind of labor politics. And I get, you know, when I kind of got going, I could uh, motivate kind of existing labor voters to definitely go out and vote. And I think that I was capable of changing people's minds, but I think my approach was one that meant that whatever the outcome of the conversation on the doorstep, and I think conversations on the doorstep are much more important than conversations on Twitter and will continue to be. And I think that's another thing that the Labour Party or the, the politics more generally, I think, is far too driven by what it sees on social media. I think that's a, a, a massive problem for politics. We can touch on that in just a moment. But, you know, on the doorstep, I, I always kind of walked away and felt that even if somebody didn't agree with me, at least they respected me. You know, but let's take the example of the Eulers. I think that, you know, most people want to live in, uh, you know, a, you know, a cities that are kind of afflicted by air pollution. I think sometimes their lifestyles contradict that desire. Um, I think, you know, where I on the doorstep and I've had similar conversations over similar issues on the doorstep, I think what I often see is kind of hooks. So if someone's got children, you know, what I'll say is, listen, I recognize why you find this particularly difficult, but you need to understand that, let's say in Hackney, or if I was in Tower Hamlets, you know, uh, I'd be saying you need to understand that in this borough, children like your children or your neighbor's children, right, do you have a duty towards, and we have a duty towards as your elected representatives, you know, are growing up with kind of the life limiting effects of, of poor air quality. They've got like 5% lower lung capacity. It means your son's never going to win an Olympic gold medal at the 1500 meters, which means that they've had less opportunities to succeed in life as other people. So, you know, I recognize that there's a cash cost associated with this, but we don't sit at the town hall and arbitrarily think of ideas to cost you more money or to impact upon your life, you know, but the fact of the matter is we've got, an air quality crisis it's a public health crisis and you know our duty as socialists is to represent the most vulnerable people in our society first and foremost who don't have a voice for themselves and who are more vulnerable and who have fewer voices than the children being poisoned in their playgrounds and in their beds by cars that you know are emitting particulate matter nitrogen dioxide you know that is literally killing people i saw a letter from the mayor of croydon today opposing the expansion of eulers you know, and I've gone back and said, you know, so I've listened to people, you know, the, the Imperial College's data shows that over 7% of deaths in Croydon are attributable to PM 2.5 levels and nitrogen dioxide, you know, they're a contributing factor in almost 10% of the deaths of the, the, uh, of the population of the most uh, populous borough in London. And, uh, you know, I would ask politicians like that, you know, why they do not feel compelled to represent the interests of the kids who are being poisoned in their schoolyards. And again, I think for some people, because I think social media has allowed this, and I think a lot of this began to emerge in the Labour Party around the kind of first kind of leadership election for, for, for Corbyn, a lot of kind of bad faith politics. You know, I, I've had, you know, people, you know, say to me, oh, well, why are you bringing children into this? What, what you, the, the, re, the children are in this 
the reason we're doing this is to try and improve outcomes for children. I mean, obviously, there's a wider issue around greenhouse gas emissions, which is hugely important. But that's also, you know, reducing those is also an investment in 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 their future. And you know, as I said before, you know, my obligations, you know, are to the children of our society, um, to delivering kind of socialism more generally to the left more widely and then to the Labour Party. You know, the Labour Party's not some sort of social club for me. It's a vehicle through which we achieve things for society, through which we deliver socialism and socialist policies. Um, but obviously the party flips that hierarchy to some degree on its head and expects us to adhere to kind of a set of values that I think are fundamentally bourgeois in nature. You know, our our code of conduct within the Labour Party requires us at all times and everywhere to show respect to people. Well, I've got absolutely no intention of showing respect to bigots and Nazis on social media. I've got no intention whatsoever of showing respect to somebody who has come on on social media, called me a liar, uh, decried me for not being born in Hackney, uh, or for the even worse crime of not being born in, in London. Um, you know, a man who was married in Hackney, had two kids there, was a school governor twice, was a, a counsellor for over six years, changed, you know, delivered many kind of radical uh, and beneficial policies to the borough. I'm not going to treat people who don't believe me morally worthy of kind of equal status of people who were, you know, born and bred in inverted commas in London um, with, with respect, because I think respect is earned. I don't think it should be given automatically. Oh, no, I completely... I completely agree with that and it just seems when someone goes to that depth that sort of uh, nativist kind of argument of what's a true Londoner it's uh, it's ridiculous and they've kind of lost the argument there but but but, but a final a final point as well is I also believe in kind of consistency um, and I try not to be a hypocrite I actually think that this kind of knockabout stuff is really important for politics I think that fighting to your, for your values, debate, argument, right? Argument that's not short of like personal insults level to people, right? Um, absolutely, I think that we need to uphold that that level of respect towards people. Um, I think that is an important part of working through the problems of a society. Um, I, I think that the idea that you can deliver you know, radical policies and not experience that pushback or, or or kind of disregard that pushback by not engaging with it on things like social media, which are a fact of political life now. I, I think that in the long run, that reduces your ability to, to deliver change because you're not having the conversations with people that you need to be having. You know, the Public Accounts Committee or the Environmental Audit Committee recently produced a report which said, you know, 60% of the decarbonisation that we need to deliver to be compliant with the six carbon budget to meet net zero emissions by 2050 will be experienced at the level of the individual. And there aren't any politicians in Parliament who are willing to stand up and say, it's our duty to ensure that the burden of these policies falls equally. But I cannot lie to you and say that it won't mean radical changes to our lives because it will, right? And this is not, you know, these aren't my words. These are the words of, you know, seasoned members of parliament on serious committees producing, you know, worthwhile and, re you know, relatively detailed uh, reports into this. So I think that 
argument, debate, I think, is it, it, it is frowned upon because I think that we, we you know we maintain the idea of um, unflappability and you know people, in the words of Bevin, although he was talking about Gates Club being kind of desiccated calculating machines when they're in office. But actually, I think um, change is traumatic. I think trauma is a word that's kind of, you know, thrown about. But change, humans, you know, uh, have evolved, I think, to oppose change and it, in the first instance. And it's a traumatic process. And I think you need to talk through it. But talking through it seems to be or, or the idea of talking through it from the perspective of uh, 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 British politics seems to be you as a politician kind of talking to the public and then if they ever come back to you, you know, what you really ought to do on a platform like Twitter is kind of ignore them. Whereas, you know, when somebody came on and called me a liar or said I was taking brown envelopes to deliver low traffic neighbourhoods, a man who'd taken an enormous pay cut to join cabinet and had to give up his pension, you know, someone who's only ever given to politics, you know, I was inclined to, to push back on that. And I don't regret that for one moment. Listen to you speak it, it kind of the frustrations that I felt as a councillor, I felt them bubbling up all over again. I think when you're a politician, those who are most exercised, those who will come and contact you, those who will turn up at town hall meetings, who will email you are often you know, we, we innately as humans have a negativity bias and those who are hostile to change, um, who don't like a particular policy, those are the ones that we hear from. And often they are not going to really change their ways. And I felt that even if I appealed to someone's humanity, if I talked about the impact that air quality was having on our children and their, and their health, if I was talking about social housing needing to be built and talking about the impact that homelessness has actually it put people's backs up if they were against this policy they would actually just kick off stronger they would say are you suggesting i don't care about poor air quality are you suggesting i don't care about homelessness i think the difference between me and you leo is that i would turn around and say i'm not suggesting it i'm explicitly <laughs> stating me <laughs> I, you know, I was in a, I was in a, uh, you know, I was in a, a, a branch Labour Party meeting some years ago, not my own branch, where I was going to make the case for the demolition of the old, completely inadequate, crumbling Britannia Leisure Centre in Hoxton and its replacement with a state-of-the-art forty million pound leisure centre and secondary school, brand new secondary school uh, on the edge of Shoreditch Park, and. Um, you know, this was being kind of vociferously opposed by uh, the left, or as I like to call them, the pseudo left of the uh, of the Labour Party, because um, the only way we could deliver good stuff for working class people in that area was by building kind of four hundred um, flats at that site, eighty five of which were council owned, council rented properties. But it wasn't sufficient for them. Um, you know, I'd have people who were purportedly of the left coming to tell me that they didn't want kids from the new secondary school using Shoreditch Park as their playground when they were out walking the dog in the daytime. Um, socialist, apparently. Um, and I was in this meeting, and um, you know, 
I had people kind of railing against the fact that we were using the cross subsidy method to raise revenue to build leisure centers and secondary schools, much needed secondary schools. And uh, I mean, they've all gone silent. Those people now after inevitably the New Britannia Leisure Center and the neighboring school have become an absolutely roaring success and loved by the neighboring working class population of, uh, of, of Hoxton. And, you know, I sat in that room and I said, frankly, I find it contemptible to sit in a room of baby boomers who under-occupy four-story million-pound houses on the edge of uh, 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 of Hackney Downs telling me, right, that a young couple in their 20s who buy a flat in, um, in this new development are somehow gentrifying the borough and um you know and 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 people out of it you were the first generation of gentrifiers and the greatest recipients of every single good policy that's improved the lives of the people of this borough and they were absolutely outraged you threatened to make kind of complaints about me for telling the truth and you know that kind of complaint culture i think has infected politicians more generally and what it essentially what it often means i mean by it but you know not, that's not always the case and you need obviously a complaints procedure to ensure that people who you know behave in reprehensible ways are held to account for their actions but we now have a situation where you know i don't know because i've never been a member of another political party you now have a um, a situation within the labor party in which this kind of behavior is rife you effectively get kind of complaints from people saying this person expressed a view that upset me right i mean you know you're in politics as i often say about football which is something else i think we often agree on kind of culturally you know this isn't legoland we're playing with live ammo here it's politics and sometimes people will say things that you disagree with passionately um you know sometimes people will say things that you think are incorrect i think it's your duty to then correct that person but I think that the the censorious nature of the lot of, a lot of the left, which has actually been cottoned onto by the right, because there's a degree of truth to it, I think is really problematic, and I think it inhibits new thinking and, and new ideas. And I think we should be willing to sit in a room with each other, as we often did in the old days of Hackney North. Uh, I think I was lucky to maybe come into the Labour Party at, in a time in which um, it wasn't as poisonous as as it was in as it had been in in the eighties. It wasn't as kind of hubristic as it had been for our period of power in the 90s. And so people were kind of willing to, I think, revisit some of their own politics and a bit more open-minded to new suggestions. Um, but it was fundamentally quite kind of social and genial in, in nature. Um, and I'm not certain that that kind of culture really exists a great deal in the Labour Party. If, if some of the CLP meetings I've been to or anything to yeah, do with no, I agree. I think the... The factionalism in the Labour Party and the hostilities between different sides adds to the timidity that we see from a lot of our politicians because not only are they fearful of the backlash from voters, but they're fearful of an unfair backlash from their own members through kind of complaint systems um, or just, you know, really unfair kind of personal attacks. But my big frustration with a lot of colleagues is actually when it came to environmental policies in building more street trees, better cycle infrastructure, low traffic neighborhoods, overwhelmingly they agreed with me. They kind of supported me when it comes to the development of new affordable housing. 
equally desperately wanted it as much as I did. But whenever there came to pushback from the public or pushback from a relatively small minority of very vocal voices, they felt that this was the wider public crying out, that actually there was something uh, profound from six people shouting at them in a public meeting somehow that these voices were representative and what I would often be thinking is take the attitude of Councillor John Burke in Hackney who will be up front and direct with those individuals who disagree with him knowing that the final say is had at the ballot box and particularly in areas where Labour are strong let's be bolder um, let's be braver and say well if you don't like it vote me out but so many politicians I found are unwilling to make take that risk, very small risk, of upsetting some voters because they are afraid of losing their seats uh, unjustly. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, from a minority allowed voices. H have you had those chats with colleagues in Hackney to say, you know, just be bolder. You aren't going to lose your seat. Come on. I've certainly inferred that from the conversation we've had, from the conversations I've had, that you know, across kind of the party and uh, kind of uh, you know the, the, the Labour group in Acne. As I said before, one of the problems, and this is this is a the, the, you know social media has only magnified this, is that we've evolved, I think, to um, conclude that reality um, surrounds us immediately. And anything that we can't see beyond that room of kind of uh, vocal opponents or something that we're attempting to deliver um, isn't real. And that the real reaction, the real barometer of public um, feeling on a particular issue is being expressed by the five or six people who've been motivated enough to, you know, in a borough of, say, 300,000 people to not stay at home and watch Game of Thrones and come instead to 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 deride you at the um at the town hall and i think they go away i mean also i think a lot of there's a lot of people who i think are quite you know the, it, politics takes um all sorts kind of involvement in your community takes all sorts but politics isn't the only way to make a difference in your community and i think there are a lot of people who probably end up becoming councillors that would have been better running a local community group because they're up for doing the nice things, but they're not up for making difficult decisions or having those conversations. But unfortunately, you know, to deliver manifestos in a borough where not everybody, even though, you know, we've got Labour um, council stacking up majorities doing very well, uh, where not everyone voted for you, the idea that everyone in the borough is going to be amenable to the change that you propose. They weren't amenable to them at the ballot box, which is why they didn't vote for you, and they're not amenable to them subsequently. But I'd also say, um, you know, when I, I think I've often been, and I, and I think social media is not obviously very good at kind of convey because there's no sense of tone, for example. There's no body language, it's just words. Um, so I think it, it, it's easy to misinterpret someone's language about particular issues. So when I went back to people and said, listen, if you don't like it, then you can vote out the Labour, the Labour administration in Hackney at the next opportunity and you can elect people who will take the borough in a different direction. You know, 
I think people interpreted that. I mean, our opponents interpreted that as a kind of come and have a go if you think you're hard enough kind mm-hmm. of approach. And on some level, I think it would be wrong to say that on the one hand, I'm a kind of political fighter, but I, I didn't really mean that in that way. I think that was an element of it. But I think the much bigger element is that, you know, I, like an Iron Bevan, believe fundamentally that democracy is the most powerful force for socialism and um, societal improvement that the world has ever devised, um, principally because, you know, under the economic system that we live our lives, there are always more, you know, low-income, moderate-income um, normals than there are kind of elites and therefore you know democracy provides us with a mechanism to advance our own interests um as a social group um but also because you know i've got you know so i, I would make those statements um primarily uh you know out of a kind of deep-seated belief in the the sanctity of the ballot box and the idea that if you know if they're right and i'm wrong and that you know the public do want to take things in a different direction and that there's a mechanism um through which they can do that that's a good thing and they should exercise that um and they should exercise that right part of this country is kind of crippled with our obsession with consultations you know the amount of times that they can be gamed by a energized vocal minority who like we said earlier usually against change or hostile to any change we also um put far too much weight on very hyper localized um views when actually i think our representatives should take a wider view i've always felt as a councillor i wasn't just representing Freud's hill i was thinking about what was best for lewisham what's best for greater london and i think every kind of politician should also have that mindset as we kind of progress and try and hit our net zero targets it's going to become more challenging for politicians in local and national government because it will get to the point that the policies that we need to deliver to deliver our green transition will impact the way people are currently living you know you won't be able you shouldn't be able to and it'll be much more difficult to do your 10 minute drives in your SUV for example um, these changes are going to probably hit people um, sometimes it might hit them in their own pockets and it actually means there is going to be a noisy backlash but it means a politicians to be bold and brave and say if you don't like it well there's next election vote me out because there is going to be a very noisy backlash against uh, green transition you were almost the test case in the lab of what it's like for a politician who is very bold and upfront and quite radical in office um do you think that the mainstream politicians that you see around us because i've i put you in a, a non-conventional bracket do you think they have what it takes to stand up to the noise that is going to come their way when we actually go on this journey to near zero. Okay, so I think that what what I would say is, before I even touch on that, is let's judge people on not their methods, right, but on their results, right? So 
on energy, I created Hackney Light and Power, publicly owned energy company that's blanketing the borough of Hackney with solar PV that delivered the largest private home thermal efficiency, free thermal efficiency program in the country through the Hackney Green Homes program, switched the council to 100% renewable electricity um, under Rego and was moving us to a power purchase agreement on waste. This is what people often forget. They think I just did transport stuff often because that was where the most noise was. Actually, on waste, I shifted this to fortnightly black bag waste collections. And in fact, the officer who delivered it in Lewisham, where it's been hugely successful, I poached from Lewisham and brought it to Hackney. And she was absolutely amazing. I'm going to give a shout out to her now. She's called Sam Kirk. She's fantastic. You know, I worked with her and a brilliant team in Hackney and a head of service, John Wheatley, to deliver residual waste restriction that is now diverting 6,000 tonnes a year of black bag waste from incineration in Hackney and into recycling. You know, delivered the first local authority sponsored library of things um, within a CLR James library in, in, in Dalston. Delivered the first estate-based reverse vending machine, um, you know, made sure that the North London Waste Authority, I was chair of the members recycling working group, uh, eliminated virtually all possible overseas shipments of waste, right? Which we were kind of pioneers at um, within the waste industry in the UK. On transport, largest number of school streets in the UK did 40 or 41. Uh, you know, five huge or 19 small low traffic neighborhoods, largest number in the country, eliminated, you know, lots of private parking in the main road network improved um, and extended um, bus lane times of operation, delivered kilometers of segregated cycling. Um, on public realm, delivered the largest urban tree planting program in the UK, the largest um, rainwater garden program in the UK, and the largest free drinking water fountain program in the UK. So, you know, there will undoubtedly be people who wrinkle their nose at my methods, but what they can't deny is my record um, and I am happy to hold that record up against any politician at any level in the country, right? So I think if we're comparing approaches, we'd have to say, objectively speaking, from a left perspective, my approach got things done. And if other people want to, I think, take a different form of approach, one that they think is, I think, less adversarial at times, which I think is necessary in politics, you know, Barbara Castle said in politics, guts is all. I think she was right about that, right? You know, then they need to demonstrate that that course of action can produce the kind of outcomes that my course of action produced. Um, so I think that's kind of really important. But then I've totally forgot the question you asked me because I was too busy massaging my own enormous ego. <laughs> Um, but take us back because it was a good question. I think I've been yeah. able to address it. I, I kind of want to add something to that, actually, just build on the, on the question. I think it would be relatively easy and probably correct for a a young politician, a young councillor, say, who was just elected this May, to look at how you went about your experience in office as a template. You know, how how you... Uh, got stuff done should be kind of I don't want to massage your ego too much with a word and inspiration however if for example you are wanting to go even further in your career say you are kind of in and around the cabinet um, in your local council but you have your eyes on 
becoming a regional mayor or becoming an MP, and you know that adversarial politics, combative politics, and speaking your mind truthfully and honestly, particularly in the world of social media, could come back to bite you. How do you find that balance? Because I fear that if you take your methods, there is a ceiling potentially. That actually an adversarial way of doing politics can hit a wall. Do you think you kind of hit the ceiling on your political career? Or do you think actually you don't you don't have any baggage from your time in office that will prevent you from going further? Because what you've achieved is fantastic. But do you think you could go further? And what would be your advice to someone who's a politician looking to be very ambitious, become an MP, become a cabinet member one day under a Labour government? Okay. Firstly, what I would say is um, it, it really doesn't matter to me whether I go further or not. It, you know, I, I didn't I didn't get into politics as a, as a career. I got into it to change the world and I'll be doing that whatever I do. You know, I'm now a local government officer. And, you know, to demonstrate that, um, to demonstrate that form is temporary, but class is permanent. I immediately delivered the largest tree planting program in that city's history um, last year, despite the fact that we had no arboricultural officer. And I had to grab the thing by the scruff of the neck and go and find 140,000 pounds and 9,000 saplings in kind from the county, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I'll be doing, I think, environmentalism in the world, no matter what, and, you know, I think I don't think we should suffer from a kind of myopia in thinking that you know um, Britain is the world anyway, and there are lots of opportunities I think to change the world, and I'll be always seeking to do that. And whether or not you know I, uh, you know, become an elected official again, uh, you know, and assume a higher level of office um, would be an incidental consequence of me doing those things. Um, so I think I. I, I did politics, you know, it, it, it completely it's the, the right way round from my perspective, possibly the wrong way round from the perspective of somebody who wants to kind of slowly go through the gears, um, uh, you know, and 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 elevate themselves within within British politics. Um, I think those people tell themselves that if they keep their head down and hide their light under a bushel, a lot of biblical references today, isn't there? <laughs> Um, I had a light under a bushel that, um, you know, when they get to where they really want to be, that's when they'll become the figure that they've always been. I think the evidence suggests otherwise. If I never, ever serve, um, which is, you know, the absolute pride and joy of my life to be able to serve the people of Hackney and to be able to be a Labour Party politician, if I never get to do that again, I know that. There's a very long line of former Labour cabinet and shadow cabinet members that have not done enough, not done as much for the cause of socialism and environmentalism in this country in their entire careers than I did in six and a half years as a Labour councillor. And that's just a statement of fact. It's not a criticism of them. But I think that, you know, tells you uh, a lot about the importance of doing, you know, the the politics that you can with the time, the resources and the power that you have because politics is fickle and it's fleeting. Uh, and, you know, you might tell yourself, I think that you know, you're going to achieve something when you just get to that place. I wonder with a lot of these people whether or not 
Um, they they wear the coat of, of that kind of persona for so long that the coat starts wearing them. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that. It's very difficult for anybody to glean from my experiences how they might go about approaching the delivery of policies in the way that I did because the simple fact of the matter is is that vociferous working class particularly male but not always male people are not well tolerated within the Labour Party um, if they are it's you, you know the kind of person that is likely to be patronized with, by giving the mayoral chain every so often a little pat on the head to tell them that they've been good and they've stayed in line. But, you know, none of the PPE graduates running the Labour Party are ever going to let you do anything. I mean, of course not. I wasn't promoted to cabinet. I booted my way into cabinet by demonstrating that I had good ideas for the borough. This goes back to 2016 when I've been a councillor for two years. You know, what I did was... You know, even though under Jules Pipe, someone who's kind of politically and temperamentally a very different figure to me, you know, had transformed the borough, someone I've got um, a huge amount of respect for, um, if not necessarily somebody who I think that, you know, would have been a drink, I would have been a drinking partner with, um, I, you know, I think I transformed the borough positively in so many ways and is a kind of really underappreciated figure, I suppose, in local government because life moves on. As the goal said, the cemeteries of the world are filled with indispensable people and he's gone off to City Hall and his contributions kind of largely been kind of forgotten. But it's bit, it was enormous hackney. It was a total basket case in 1999. No overall control. A fifth of the street lights weren't working, couldn't clean the streets. You know, but what I noticed in 2016 is that the price that we paid locally for that remarkable transformation of the borough was that environmental policy making decarbonization just wasn't far enough up the political agenda and so you know my pitch to the national executive committee was to come in and bring some fresh ideas in that respect um you know and i was very proud to have been shortlisted as one of the candidates one of four candidates so there was me jonathan mcshane Phil Glamberley went on to become mayor or got, you know, had a great relationship, working relationship and continues to have a, a great relationship with um, and Antoinette Bramble is kind of deputy mayor in, in Hackney. You know, we had this really, I think, comradely campaign where we put our ideas forward. I think it was clear that I was never going to, to win the competition um, because, you know, most people, they'd all been in cabinet. Uh, they had, the, you know, uh, a long time under their belt as, as councillors but I think I surprised people by how I was able to energize the membership with how we could radically transform the borough and create a template for what other local authorities could do across the country and that's how I ended up um you know making my way into cabinet I think you know Phil saw um the benefits of, of putting me in cabinet because he felt that in me he had somebody and he wasn't wrong I think it'd be fair to say who could, you know, who wasn't just going to say these things, but was actually going to deliver them. And every single thing I said I'd deliver in that campaign, I went on to deliver and a lot more. In retrospect, I made the mistake of, I think, what you implied before, which was thinking that through force of personality and strength of arguments that there were people that I could kind of convert 
Um, and actually, I think I wasted an enormous amount of time on those individuals and, you know, um, you know, created a pretext for them to kind of, uh, engage in a, I think a well-publicized harassment, um, campaign against me and an attempt to kind of oust me from political office on, you know, vexatious and spurious and spurious ground, which, which failed. But I do think anybody having looked at my experiences, I think that perhaps isn't quite so pathologically committed to sticking up for themselves will, I think, think that, you know, there's better things to do with their time. The question you're ultimately asking me is, was the kind of, you know, but again, by, a, you know, a small but vocal minority of individuals was the kind of attempted character assassination. Uh, and bear in mind, of course, none of this happened until I delivered low traffic neighborhoods. I've done delivered huge amounts of kind of radical policies before that. And none of this had kicked in until I, uh, you know, delivered low traffic neighborhoods, which I think demonstrates that I'm not a controversial figure but that I delivered controversial policies and I defended them. And that's quite a different thing. I think a controversial figure goes looking for controversy. What did Stalin say? His heroes don't make history. History makes heroes. Um, you know, and I'm not saying that that's the case with me, but what I'm saying is, is that, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation probably if I hadn't delivered the LTNs. That's the controversial thing because, you know, I delivered a, a radical change that put the needs, which is so rarely done in this country, that put the needs of uh, those who are afflicted uh, by, you know, our rapidly um, spiraling climate crisis and will be in the future and, and the public health effects of motor vehicles in particular before the needs of drivers, the automobile companies, and by proxy, the fossil fuel complex. Um, and also, and I think this goes back to touch on a question that you, that you that, or, or, or something you referred to earlier, which is that this is kind of like the low hanging fruit of what we need to do around decarbonization. And it's going to get a great deal tougher than this. This is the easy work. Because I, I, I would just interject and say that actually I think there'll be a lot of people out there and, and the individuals, you know, the, the handful of probably tune into this will similarly be aligned with me in having two thoughts. One, that actually the, the, the work that you got done, the way you went about it and your honesty and upfront nature is all things that we want to see. I was all very positive. But actually, the backlash that you received, the some of the personal attacks that you had, some of the serious threats that you received, there is a fear that did those play a part in you standing down? And when politicians will need to be braver and bolder to make even bigger changes, will anyone be able to carry out those policy change in the way you had without getting that backlash because if every politician receives the sort of backlash you did how are we going to cope and maybe maybe they would have to go about it in a different way well i think that there's a there's a couple of answers in there and unlike my other answers i'll try and be brief which is to say firstly i'm um, 
though the two i mean it's unfortunate really that the the the, the kind of campaign of harassment against me was kind of correlated with you know me standing down but the fact of the matter is is i'd moved out of the borough and i've decided to make that a permanent move uh that i was aware that i'd been made aware that uh that that, that joe anderson imminently stand down um that it was a, a long shot but that i was you know potentially hoping to be a shortlisted candidate to replace him and i think i needed to demonstrate that i was willing to kind of move quickly to the city if necessary um you know in order to participate in in that campaign um and not knowing that i wouldn't be able wouldn't have been able to do that um which i wasn't in the end um you know i'd have i'd have stayed on until the may but i'd already told phil in the uh in the october or november the previous year that i was looking for jobs and was hoping to move out of the borough um permanently largely because as well you, you can't that the, the fact that you're precluded from membership of the local government pension scheme um and the fact that comparatively speaking salaries are low um it just wasn't i think reasonable for me to expect to go on uh undermining the long-term financial security of my wife and and uh you know my family and you think well well why does that kind of undermine your wife's financial security well you know obviously there's a the your pension payments will be at a reduced level go to your partner if you die um um and uh you know if you've not had a pension because you've been in i mean i i like for the four four and a bit years i was in cabinet there was none whatsoever so i had to kind of subsequently make up for that another i think issue and i think it would be I don't think it would be truthful if I didn't know this was that I think COVID to some extent play a role because we'd all been kind of working from home and normally have kind of quite a bit of solidarity in group physical solidarity. People come up and they'll talk to you, you'll go for a drink, you'll talk through issues. Um, you know, I think that spending that long away from my colleagues was, uh, you know, through such a difficult time, uh, was incredibly draining. I think that though the overwhelming majority of Labour group was supportive, um, and I absolutely, you know, retain the support of Phil, we were a great team together. I was concerned that there wasn't enough vocal public support coming from the backbenchers. Um, I think that on some small level, I no longer feel this, but I think on some low level, I felt a degree of resentment about, you know, what I saw as the failure of some of my colleagues to come out and fight for the values that they purported to believe in and to defend someone, as I would have always done in the case of, you know, I'm a very loyal friend like that, um, and to f defend someone uh, against the, the absolutely rancid, baseless attacks and character assassinations that I was subjected to um and it was tiring really tiring um to work that many hours i uh, you know on such kind of important but kind of thankless tasks 
And, you know, I've been feeling really ill and I didn't realize at the time that I was developing a blood clot in my right leg. And, um, you know, I kind of subsequently emerged not long after I kind of resigned and I had to have a period of kind of convalescence whilst doing consultancy stuff. And it was a pretty unpleasant period. Um, so I think it was overwhelmingly the smallest component of the decision um, that I made. Um, but I think my advice would be to back benches uh, wherever possible to support your colleagues who are going through difficulties. I think we, we talk the language of solidarity in the Labour Party and the Labour movement, but when it gets a bit hot in the kitchen, solidarity evaporates rapidly and people may people may support you silently but actually in a social media world their silence is taken for dissent sometimes and um you know i think i think at the time you know i i did on some level feel hurt that people who were you know purported to care about these issues um could see how kind of despicably I was being treated and attacked and, you know, didn't roll their sleeves up. I'm the mate on the night out who'll kind of always go to the the defence of their friends, you know, having given, I've been a member of the Labour Party now for 16 years and given over, you know, I've been involved in, in left politics for around half of my life, more than half of my life, in fact, about 22 years. Uh, and, you know, at the best times, it feels like you're, you're kind of in a club of really good people who are trying to do good against the grain of um, a world that isn't always going in the direction that we want it to. Um, but then there are other times when I think that the the words and the purported values of the labor movements desert the participants. And I think that there were moments in my delivery of these programs where that happened. But I think there's another wider issue here, and it takes you back to my original point. I think that, you know, the Labour Party has not been historically and continues to be quite poor at elevating able, vociferous working class people to the highest levels of the party for a variety of reasons that we haven't got time to, to go into um, today. Um, you know, but I, I, I can't quite recall what, uh, even though obviously he's been cancelled for, for being absolutely rancid and a bigot, but, you know, I still kind of love the Smiths and love Morrissey, but he says in one song, you know, it, 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 we hate it when our friends become successful and if they're northern that makes it even worse <laughs> and I think that there's a kind of I, I, I think there's a bit of an element of that as well um, and I don't and I also think there were some people I mean there's another line in that song where it says you know it could have been me it should have been me and yeah. I think there were some people you know who were handsomely educated uh you know, who thought that it was their right to kind of end up in cabinet, maybe, um, and go on to all the things you couldn't believe. Um, you know, this lad from Liverpool, um, uh, uh, who spoke like I did and acted like I did, had the gall to throw his hat in the ring to replace Jules' pipe and then get himself into cabinet. And, uh, you know, did, uh, 
Morrissey saying and beware I bear more grudges than lonely high court judges and politics is a bit like that as well isn't it yeah I think on on that note you'll you'll always have you know jealousy makes the political world go round and that that competition and 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 grudges too often I feel like it paralyzes political groups and stops them functioning that, that's why I love directly elected mayoralties. That's why I love yes, them. I love them because the power of the directly elected mayor does not flow from group. It doesn't flow from yeah. group. And wherever we see, you've got a neighbour in Borough, which I was heavily involved with professionally for a number of years through my work at City Hall, right? And it has a classic elected leader model. Uh, and I would say they spend about 80% of their time trying to figure out how they do each other in. <laughs> rather than seeking to transform the lives of the people in that borough. So the idea that that the old leader system is some sort of solve for the problems of directly elected mayoralties, I think is an absolute nonsense. And anyone who's been remotely involved with the machinery of local government, particularly officers who need certainty in order to get their jobs done, who don't think, actually, in six months, this person might even be in a job, so why do I need to listen to them? Right. I think I think we'll know that that model of leadership is not effective at producing the kind of rapid changes that the climate crisis demands of us. And I'm very concerned that cities like Liverpool are reverting to a model that has failed time and time and time again at a crucial point at which we need to be delivering groundbreaking, radical um, transformative policies in the interests of the environment and our children in the future. And if I can, I can sum up because although we've been talking for a while, I wanted to do this podcast series to celebrate voices that are brave. I think the thing that our politics suffers from most is is cowardice, and those people who are cowardly when it comes to standing up for their principles or cowardly in facing down noisy opposition or cowardly in being fearful to stand up to their pals and their mates who are face, who are facing hostility i saw that certainly in my time in politics that those who stood up for our challenging low traffic neighborhoods were often let down by others who weren't backing them up there was too much cowardice of people looking after themselves and not standing up for their mates. And fundamentally, they wanted to get voices on here that shown that being being brave means you can be a success and make change. I think you're an example of that. So I hope that those listening this, to this podcast, when it does finally come out, hear your story and are inspired by it. And hopefully you aren't just a flame that uh, burned brightly and then was snuffed out, but actually you'll be back eventually back into politics. Big peak politics that we want to see later on. What 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 do they say, Leo? It's better to ban out than fade away. Um, and unfortunately, I think there are too many people who are committed to fading away in politics that you know rolling the the dice to deliver the kind of changes that we uh, that we need. I think that I suppose my final word on it would be that. You know, I think people will kind of rise with the oceans and I think that inevitably there'll have to be more of the kind of politicians doing the kind of things that I did.
because I think the public will increasingly demand it. In fact, I think that in my lifetime, there's never been as big a gulf between what politicians or, or, or I think politicians who are clearly in the pay of a ruling class that want to maintain the status quo, right? I've never been further with what the pub, from the, what the public actually wants. I mean, if we take a look at, say, renewables, for example, we will see that an overwhelming majority of the voters of every mainstream party in this country support, you know, rapid and deep decarbonisation of the energy system. You know, they support onshore wind, and yet we've got, you know, a government that will only back offshore wind because, of course, the only company, the only people who can get involved in that, as Leo Murray said recently, is, you know, multinational corporations who can benefit from it. We had the conditions uh, in which a, a local village could put up their own wind turbine and generate their own energy and earn some money from it, and the government banned it. And so I think what is beginning to be exposed now at this stage in our political history is because there are more pressures being brought to bear on the society in which we live, of which climate change and global warming is the most important, but just one is who these people rarely represent. What one of the lines that I often deploy, which absolutely infuriated my opponents, was that I was always clear I wasn't going to give drivers a veto on whether or not we poison children. Um, and they were my priority, will continue to be my priority in whatever politics I do now or, or in the future. I hope fundamentally that more people step out of line and challenge the political establishment who are currently, particularly on the climate crisis, failing us. Uh, but yeah, John, I've kept you an awful long time. I hope you've enjoyed chatting to me. I'd like to invest time in the things that interest <laughs> me and procrastinate over. So I hope this wasn't uh, procrastination for you. I hope this was... Uh... Well, no, it was almost two hours long, so I think... Um, but yeah, uh, thanks, uh, thanks for joining me on this call and um, hopefully we'll you know, see each other in person and go for a pint sometime. If you're ever in South London. Try to avoid South London. Well. Maybe I'll come up to the East London. <laughs> there, there, there'll be, there, there'll be dragons. Um, well, it's, it's no, I'm joking. I love South London. I've got nothing but affection for it. And if ever there's a seat going down there, you can cut this from my. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. Gonna... I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not a carpet banger. South London is uh, just filled with people who can't uh, can't afford to uh, move to Hackney. Well, at least with my mates, uh, anyway. Well, I can't afford to move <laughs> to Hackney. That's why I don't live there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stepping Out of Line podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, listen without the adverts and hear bonus episodes, sign up to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash steppingoutofline. That's www.patreon.com slash steppingoutofline. If you want to find out more about John Burke, make sure to check him out on Twitter at John Burke UK. That's at John Burke UK. And if you want to find out more about what Leia's getting up to and any updates on the making of the podcast, then make sure to follow him on Twitter at Leo underscore FH. That's at Leo underscore FH. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you listen to the next one.